Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host, Georgia, and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks, and refer to the organisations in the show notes below. I'd like you to meet Nicole Sawin. Nicole is a non-binary martial artist and social worker in British Columbia, Canada. I first met Nicole when they joined the Conscious Coaching course and then went on to develop Connection Martial Arts, a trauma-informed kickboxing program, which is an affiliate of the Conscious Combat Club. I always look forward to catching up with Nicole in our monthly affiliate meetings and hearing about the new ideas that they're excited to implement in their program. Nicole brings a wealth of knowledge. I have a deep respect from them, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode. We cover topics such as dialectal behavioral therapy in kickboxing, boxing as bilateral stimulation, neurodiversity in martial arts, and so much more. So, Nicole, before we get into talking about the trauma-informed specificity of martial arts, I wanted to open by asking you what parallels, like what similarities do you see between martial arts practice and coaching and social work, and in what ways do you see that they are really different? Oh, so many. That's a really good question. Okay. Um, let's do parallels, um, the parallels between, let me see, parallels between uh, martial arts and social work, right? Uh-huh. Yes. Um, so I guess one of the first parallels that come to mind is that very, like, the holding the space, the containment that has to be done both, like, and I come from a very specific field of social work, um, clinical social work. So I work with children and youth in in clinical therapeutic sessions. So um, generally one-on-one or group therapy, which in both cases you have to you have to hold space, you have to meet people where they're at. Um, you have to sometimes be containment for people and help people contain whatever is coming up for them. Um, which I think is the exact same thing that you have to do as a coach in in um, class or individual training settings. Um, so that would be the first big one that comes up for me. Um, in terms of other parallels, I think they're both very holistic oriented. Um, social work is very much oriented to like social justice and looking at whole people, not just one aspect of them, not just their biological or their physical, their biological or their emotional health, but them as whole people and meeting um, meeting their needs in different areas of their life. Similarly, um, to, to be a good coach or in, in, um, in martial arts settings, it's not just knowing the skills, it's also taking care of your body, um, listening to when you need to rest and when you need to push, um, healthy nutrition, healthy relationship with your body, healthy relationship with food, your the environment that you're embedded in too, um, whether that be neighborhood or the community. Um, these are and the stressors going on in your life that's going to impact training. That's also something that we look at in social work. So there's there's just it's to me it's like one and the same. 
Um, and it's just such a natural bringing together of the two. I think martial arts is a very beautiful vessel to be able to um, practice social work in, um, and especially for certain parts of certain parts of the population can be a lot more accessible than your traditional um, sit down one-on-one talk therapy. Because um, I think talk therapy is very effective for some people at certain parts of their journey. Um, but for others, I think talk therapy is not necessarily very accessible for where they're at. Um, so s- s- pros and cons, strengths, all that, all that stuff. Um, I went off on a little tangent. I think those are the primary parallels that jumped to my um, head when you initially asked that question. Um, your other question was um, the, can you phrase that again? Yeah, so in what ways do you see them as being different or like juxtaposed to each other? So I guess when we're talking about the differences, what comes to mind for me, which I which may or may not be answering your question, is the potential for martial arts to do a lot of harm, um, depending on the environment and depending on the the people who are facilitating that space. And if it's not done ethically, it can cause a lot of a lot of harm that would be um, like I always think about like the the social work ethical guidelines um, and that's really what what uh, helps what helps ground me sometimes in terms of um, what are actually like ethical and good ways about of going about things and I find that lots of spaces don't necessarily have those things in mind they're driven by profit they're driven by like producing fighters they're driven by all sorts of things that aren't necessarily the best interests of their students um which can which can cause a lot of damage either traumatize or re-traumatize people um and i've seen a lot of folks go through gyms and have really traumatic experiences whether um, that be pretty directly or indirectly just like a coach not knowing how to approach a certain person in a certain way Um, and then people just never come back and it's really sad to see. Yeah totally so what I took from that is that the similarities are really centered around some of the potential that martial arts have Um, But also just the fact that either way we're seeing people where they're at, so whether coaches are aware of it or not, um, they are doing an element of social work and the parallel would be like when they're doing a good job um, and where they become really different is where they're kind of not doing such a great job at being aware of their responsibility to their students and the different kinds of folks who are like showing up on the map. Um, and the consequences of their actions that they might have um, in terms of, you know, how they're coaching, what their policies are like, the other people that they have in the space and and things of that nature. So it sounds to me almost like they could be very much one in the same or very different depending on who's doing it and how they're going about it. Yeah, I think the how is so important. 
And it always like, it always astounds me how little support and how little training we give coaches, whether that be just in, in martial arts or in sports in, in general, because coaches are in such positions of power and such positions of influence over children and youth in very key developmental stages of their life. And they have often like no education about childhood development, no um, understanding of mental health, and that that is only present if they bring it in themselves, which often like coaches are volunteer parents or teachers who have their own biases and don't under like haven't done the work to understand their own biases and then do a lot of damage unintentionally with with the best intentions like people go into any kind of coaching because they they want to they want to better the sport and and facilitate that opportunity for for young athletes but on it there's there's a lot of harm done when it's not done intentionally and with awareness of lots of these things that we have been talking about Yes, 100%. And I definitely want to circle back to some of those themes and give folks a lot of practical takeaways or things to start thinking about, resources to look towards. Um, But before we get into the trauma-informed piece, I want to talk more about you. Um, So I'm cognizant of the question that I've asked all my guests around why do you think people say that martial arts has saved their life? And really, I want to rephrase that into being like, what has been the impact of martial arts on your life? But to make it a little bit less broad, let's keep like that general statement that is kind of a common theme in mind. So can you talk through some of the impacts that martial arts or your training has had upon you? Really good question. And it really depends on the stage of my life, because I've had different stages of my life where there's been um, different impacts. And it's very interesting to kind of look back at that. Um, I guess the first, the first wave of those impacts um, probably was like at the end of uh, my master's. Um, I started martial arts pretty late in life. I al- have always wanted to to do it, but grew up in a really small town where my mom was like one of the only social workers and the only programs in town. Um, she would never tell me why, but she would not let me go to them. Um, so just was not, <laughs> martial arts was not an option when I was a kid. Um, and then I tried in my undergrad um, and I tried karate for a karate program for, um, it was like a semester long. So it was three months and it was a lot of sitting and meditation. And I loved the sparring. Um, just so got it. We only did it like one day though. <laughs> um, but the, I found the, the breathing and the meditation pushed me so far outside my window of tolerance. I was, I was, uh, very, um agitated a lot of the time after classes but just loved it and kept wanting to come back um when I finally found a program when I came uh to Prince George when I started my master's um that really fit my my needs in terms of like the movement and the sparring piece and the opportunities to actually engage in that 
Um, and for me, um, the reason why I kept coming back to martial arts was I, and I remember like saying this phrase to myself, um, I wanted to embody confidence. I wanted to learn how to embody confidence. Um, Cause for me growing up, very perfectionistic, um, very anxious, very like obsessive compulsive. I really struggled with, um, had an eating disorder, struggled with compulsive exercise, um, depression in and out of hospital. Like there was a lot of stuff going on for me growing up and that continued into my undergrad years. So by the time I hit my master's, I was so burned out. Um, I don't even know how I finished my master's, but I was, I was so burned out and just exhausted and just did not have a sense of myself. Um, and had experienced a lot of things that I didn't know what to do with and I didn't know how to put words to it. So all I knew was this word confidence. Confidence was something I did not have. That was something I could latch on to. I'm like, okay, I can do something about this and I want to um I want to do something about this. So that's that's uh my first my first night going to it was Taekwondo. It was ITF Taekwondo. And um, the owner, um, I, I and super appreciate his like confidence in me too, because it was a black belt sparring night. And his wife was like, "Oh, maybe maybe the first day for somebody shouldn't be that day." But he's like, "Ah, Nicole will be fine." Like, <laughs> I just told him, "I'm like, oh, I tried karate for three months. <laughs> like, I'll be fine." So, in retrospect, maybe. Uh, Big, a bit of a bigger conversation should have been had if we're thinking about like the trauma-informed piece, but it worked for me. So um, I just absolutely loved it. And I think like you've talked about flow states on the podcast before. Um, and like for me, sparring and just being able to have that, like that dance with somebody was just so cool. Um, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And I like drove I, when I was driving home that night, I was just like, I was, I was high. <laughs> it was cool. There's this concept of um, oneness in dialectical behavior therapy that Marshall Linehan talks about. Um, and it's the idea that when we're mindful and present, um, there's this experience that some people have where they just feel like one with the universe, like this all encompassing wholeness um, and some people experience it like when they're in nature, um, people like have different examples of when they felt like that connection with the universe as a whole. And for me, that's like after, after um, uh, sparring after martial arts. So um, the coming back to your question, it was a bit of a long rambling kind of thing um, for that first kind of stage uh martial arts in terms of the impacts on me really helped me embody confidence. I started carrying myself different. I started being more assertive at work. It helped me find identity as well. Um, and it helped me like express identity too. Um, helped me find community with um, like the other people in my dojang, um, belonging, like just so many things. I've I always had a really hard time connecting with people too. Um, so for me, uh, having like structured 
environments um, makes it a lot easier to connect with people. So uh, my Taekwondo people were my friends and they were my only friends, which kind of, it's kind of sad, but <laughs> it's what it is. <laughs> so yeah, I think a lot of community, a lot of those pieces. Then the next wave of impacts um, was when I found kickboxing. Um, and I kind of brought my training to another level, I guess. Um, and I found a new community, um, not a new, I kind of added on to the community a little bit. Um, but there was a, a women's only program who that was started by a new coach in town. Um, so I joined that and um, the experience of the, the harder sparring. So Taekwondo is very, very light sparring. It's touch sparring. If you're a gymnast, you're very good at Taekwondo um, because it's a lot of flexibility stuff that, you know, my body just isn't necessarily built for. So when I found like kickboxing, it was a, and the program was like a mixture of kickboxing and Muay Thai. Um, so when I found that, I just absolutely fell in love because the, the more intense sparring and the, the leg kicks and the sweeps, it just brought it to a whole nother strategic level that made me fall in love with martial arts all over again. And I think that even like made me feel more confident in terms of um, like being in my body and the, the um, I'm losing my train of thought here. How am I trying to explain this? The even the, go for it. Do you want me to jump in? Does it, yeah, is it speaking it. kind of to this idea around getting, needing more and more challenge to stay in flow states um because when you're like kind of matching that level you're like you have to be totally embodied and totally present to be able to respond to sweeps and feel like when your balance is about to be upset or to feel when like you're able to break away from the clinch feel where you're about to land a punch and move around and things of that nature Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to say it because I, I, I noticed that I was getting super dissatisfied with Taekwondo, um, especially because um, just the, the style, the style of sparring is just, it's, it's very light, it's very specific, um, very specific targets. Um, and I loved it. I loved the movement, but I found I was like plateauing and like I wanted more. So um, <laughs> the the kickboxing and Muay Thai like gave that for me. And that was when I really like wrapping my hands for the first time um, was so symbolic of me actually learning how to take care of my body. So that was the big shift for me in in that stage of my life because I was still very like quite a quite abusive to my body up until then um and the learning how to wrap my hands and then feeling that oh I can punch harder <laughs> when I when I do this when I actually like take care of it that's very mm -hmm. interesting so it charted it started to shift the like the connections 
I had made in my brain since I was little about like um, this weird twisted connection connection between oh restriction and just pushing through and all of those were like strength in it and it reframed the narrative to be taking care of your body is strength and resting is strength and acknowledging like your boundaries and where you're at is strength so that was that was a huge pivoting point for me um in terms of like my kind of wellness overall Yes, I love that reframe. Um, I think that's a soundbite right there, talking about that change from restriction to working with, right? It's like the embodiment of, you know, acting outside of patriarchy instead of trying to have power over your body. You were like, oh, I can have power too. I can have power with. I have power Mm -hmm. within. What? Mm -hmm. There's an alternative? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And then even like my coach was um, very like actually he, he did his best um, more so than in, in the previous exp- experiences that I had, though. But he tried to meet the individual needs of the of the athletes and he recognized their individual strengths, which mm-hmm. was such a unique experience for me um, and having him do that again was that reframe of oh I'm like I'm okay how I am I have strengths and I can use those in my way to to be able to reach my goals um so like your own unique fighting style like something that he would like always laugh and talk about but I'm like oh that yeah we can be individual (laughs) And we can yes. have individual strengths. So it was a very like, like, and I know this stuff. I tell it to my clients all the time. Um, I can tell it to myself, um, but it's very different. Like actually experiencing it and embodying it. And that's how those, the, the brain actually starts shifting in terms of how we're, how I'm thinking about these things. So yeah, that would be the next, the next I guess, stage and wave of impacts in martial arts for me. Yes. I don't think we'll ever get through an episode of this podcast without somehow experiential knowledge coming up and being like, no, you can't just do positive affirmations in the mirror and on its (laughs) own, right? Affirmation without action won't change anything because you can't lie to your brain. You're smarter than that. Like give yourself more credit (laughs) than that. Yeah, definitely. (sighs) Yeah. And like, it's interesting. Um, you've it, and you've interviewed her on your podcast as well, um, Danielle um, Stabler. I think is how you pronounce her last name. Um, she does boxing therapy in Israel, and mm-hmm. I connected with her. Um, and we've been talking about like EMDR and uh, and why am I forgetting the term? Bilateral stimulation. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, and and how um, I even brought this up in a training that I had a little bit ago too, and it blew people's minds of boxing being like another um, another form of bilateral stimulation because it's especially on pads, right? Because you're crossing um, crossing your body and crossing the other person's body with the pads. So um, for me, doing 
pad work, like it was, I think it was how many months in? Like three months in, three to six months in of like in my training and kickboxing and doing like really heavy, like Muay Thai style um, pad work training. Um, <laughs> un, like unlocked this, I don't even know what to call it in my brain and I acknowledge some pretty significant trauma that had happened in my like early, early childhood. Um, and years of therapy, couldn't touch it. Um, couldn't even get near it. And then just like three months of, of doing kickboxing and it was like, it was coming up. So that was really interesting. Um, that is really interesting. Can we can we stay there for a little moment? Because I yeah, want to make sure that, that I'm understanding this and that the audience is really understanding this too. So bilateral stimulation um, and EMDR, my understanding is that those um, like types of practices work by helping folks access memories where they don't need to be totally absorbed into the memory and they can find a little bit of separation to make it a little bit more tolerable that's my impression. Can you correct us? Maybe just explain what bilateral stimulation is to start with, and then we can we unpack a bit more what happened um, in your case. For sure. So, like, first disclaimer, um, mm-hmm. I have not taken EMDR training. I've done, like, um, I've worked with practitioners who have. I've done EMDR myself um, a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I've done OEI, which is, like, based on... Um, EMDR uh but not mm-hmm. as like it's it's not the evidence it doesn't have the evidence base that EMDR does yet um yep. so my so take my words with a grain of salt um because yep. I, have, I I'm not officially certified in EMDR but mm-hmm. my understanding is that the bilateral stimulation um helps reintegrate trauma and trauma memories and the sensations that come up in the body. So a lot of, and I've been, I've sat in sessions with my clients with a, with a, um, with somebody, a clinician doing EMDR with my client. And a lot of it is just being very present with what is coming up and following that and um, using the bilateral stimulation to reintegrate um to reintegrate those sensations and the memories that that are coming, so it's it's um, not just a kind of distress tolerance thing. It's also mm-hmm. a, a reintegration of of where the trauma is is being held to. Is my understanding. okay? And with that framework in mind, then what do you? hypothesize happened to you while you were doing pad work so for me I think the the it's hard to explain um similarly I think it's it's interesting because in pad work is it can be very intense um <laughs> and it, it can have moments of intensity and moments of um of slowing down, circling, um, those kind of things. And Mm -hmm. I think what was happening for me at that time in my life, like work was also very stressful. There was 
a lot of things happening in the community. There was a lot of things happening with my caseload. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was a lot. So I just was holding a lot. And the pad work was enabling me to be present and also ride that and be present with it. And at the same time as doing more of a, like the bilateral stimulation piece. So I think I was being present with those things and actually being aware of the body sensations because generally I'm pretty checked out um, from my body. Um, and martial arts is one of the ways that I'm able to actually feel connected and in it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I was actually just being present in my body and then the, the pad work was helping me work through that um, in in a way in which I felt like secure and safe. Um, and that created enough space to then be able to consciously acknowledge some of it where before it was just locked, kind of locked away a little bit. Okay. Okay. So I think I'm getting it. I'll see if I can paraphrase and you tell me if I've got it. So my impression is that essentially sometimes our brain locks memories and puts it in like a back back shelf where it says like this was really bad this was really tough I'm going to put it back here I'm going to still um feed you some of those feelings or body sensations or I might disconnect your body in some way to make sure it doesn't happen again but the memory itself and the experience itself I'm going to put it somewhere um where it's going to be kind of locked up quote unquote. So if I could paraphrase that to see that my understanding is correct, what I'm thinking as you're speaking is that sometimes our brains lock up, quote unquote, certain memories in like the back of our brains, like on a back shelf to be like, this was a really intense thing. This was a lot. This part of me, I'm going to hide it kind of away but I'm still going to experience some of the things associated with that, whether that might be dissociation or body disconnection or anxiety or depression or all of the things that can still come from that memory still being a part of you, but I'm going to kind of bury it. Um, and that, that can feed into our stress. And then when more and more stress comes in, it's kind of like that shelf of space um, that, you know, was holding the things that we're trying to not have to deal with front on because there's so much for our body and our nervous system is getting like more and more full. Um, and then what the EMDR or bilateral stimulation type of um, practices in general can do is to help us integrate those memories from like the back shelf um, and sort of bring them through so that they're more in the in the general library and they don't need to have that sort of like our brain does a neurological biological tag of like this was really dangerous make sure it has this like really strong marker on it mm -hmm. can help it kind of go in the library um and then the piece of it being like moving your body just helps kind of like kick start all of that being possible because it's like once you're in your body then you can start to do that work um and the bilateral stimulation kind of helped with the integration and I think the disclaimer I would put to is I'm I'm rambling because I'm kind of trying to piece this together I would say to everyone listening like we don't we don't know brains like we <laughs> we know like 10% of 
what is actually happening inside of the brain. We just don't have the science yet. We take a lot of educated guesses. So for me to even say to Nicole, like, and what are the biological mechanisms behind like what was happening there? Sometimes it's like it was a combination of presence, of moving my body, of releasing some emotions, of the bilateral stimulation that somehow like all together caused these things. Because you could imagine designing an experiment to try and isolate which particular factors are causing what is probably not even helpful because it's likely it's a combination. Um, (laughs) So that's kind of helping me process it a little bit more. I hope that's helping the audience. Would you have anything to add to that to help everyone kind of get a grip on this bilateral stimulation in martial arts, helping process memories piece? (laughs) For sure. I think you described it really well and a great disclaimer too, because it's also so individual Um, and Mm -hmm. This working for me, it wouldn't necessarily like work in the same way for somebody else. Um, and it reminds me about like the, the the experience that lots of people have with yoga. And some people find yoga very helpful and some people find yoga very activating. Um, and I think it is, I might be, I might go off on a little bit a bit of a different tangent rather than adding to what you were saying but I I think that it's very individual so it is very hard to actually know what is going on um and I think another piece that is so beautiful about martial arts in general is the distress tolerance aspect that's happening at the exact same time um so I'm, I'm very grounded in dbt so distress tolerance from dbt if you look at the tip skills um with like more intense exercise that can help us regulate our regulate our nervous system and the move i always found yoga so hard because it was so still um and it was just it was too loud it was too loud in my head um but when i'm doing things like pad work and I, oh, I also found that with just doing regular EMDR, because I did do EMDR with a practitioner. Um, but being being seated and being still um, when we're doing these things um, just drove me far outside my window of tolerance. And I was not able to to effectively to effectively do the do the approach. Um but when I added the movement in, I was able to ride those waves of distress and I think keep myself inside the window of tolerance a little bit more so mm-hmm. I could actually stay present. Um, so when we're talking about and like the co- the combination of factors for me that are that are effective are probably different um, from somebody else. So it's 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 complicated. I guess is it is complicated. (laughs) Yes. Yes. My, this is my experience with that. A hundred percent. And something that you've spoken about a couple of times now um, that I want to make sure we clarify for everyone is DBT, dialectal behavioral therapy. What is it and how do you integrate it into your trauma informed kickboxing classes? Sure. So um, DBT is it is an approach. Um, it's a specific therapeutic modality like CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. If, if you've heard of that, well, it was pretty common. Um, <laughs> that was developed by Marsha Linehan. Um, and 
It was developed um, because the approaches that were being used at the time, um, like CBT, like um, a lot more of like the psychoanalytic approaches, um, were not helpful for folks who were dealing with extreme emotion dysregulation. Um, so suicidality, self-harm, like a lot of these really severe ups and downs um, was just not not effective. Um, it was initially developed for um, folks who were labeled with borderline personality disorder. Um, but since then um, has been um, shown to be very effective for um, a wide range of, of mental health difficulties. Um, and it was kind of a, a pretty groundbreaking approach in terms of it being more skill oriented and skills based um, than process based. Um, the approaches before were very much focused on um, kind of like, like Freud trying to connect what is why is this happening? What are the mm -hmm, causes? Mm -hmm. All of these kind of pieces rather than actually equipping people to, to cope with the with emotion dysregulation. Um, so DBT is very skills based. There's like four modules, mindfulness, emotion regulation. Um, I always distress tolerance and interpersonal skills. Um, and it's it's uh, it, it's based on CBT and it brings in um, more acceptance skills. Um, so that's, yeah, I think that's, I think that's DBT in a nutshell. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, there's this new, new approach to DBT, radically open DBT, which I really want to get training in because um, there's disorders of under control, but then there's also disorders of over control. So under control are, um, you see a lot of like self-harm, um, uh, bulimia, um, I guess you think about like uh, bipolar disorder, those all kind of tend to that realm. If you look at disorders of over-control, you see perfectionism, you see anorexia, you see um, obsessive compulsive disorder, these kind of, these kind of things. And um, it, DBTRO focuses more on like the acceptance skills um, than, than some of the other modules in DBT, which can sometimes give uh, more tools to people to control things. So they had to redo the modules a little bit. But mm. yeah, so that's, that's DBT. And Marsha Linehan actually like had a lot of experiences in hospital herself. So she developed it from like, her own personal experience and her work and research with her clients. So very, very cool. And what does that look like in a kickboxing class then? So I bring a lot of the, the language from DBT into kickboxing. So a lot of like the grounding and mindfulness skills um, I bring from DBT and the emotion regulation um, skills a lot of it is is I don't want to I don't want to say basic, but it it brings in um, an understanding of if you like if you don't sleep 
if you don't have enough sleep, if you don't have enough food, if you don't have enough water, if there's a stressful thing going on that day, these are all going to increase your um, vulnerability to your emotions. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's like a model of emotions in DBT that um, I, that I teach and as a way of, of um, increasing our, our self-care. I don't like self-care. Um, that's a different conversation, but don't really have another word for it. Um, but, so we take, take care of ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And the even like emotion regulation, a big part of that is recognizing emotions and being able to label them. Um, mm-hmm. So I do um, like a, I do a battery check-in at the beginning of class and at the end of class to increase people's awareness um, of where they're at and what that feels like in their body. Um, we have a grounding skill of the day that they are welcome to practice or if they want to choose something else, they choose something else. So we're, we're kind of like trying to build toolboxes, which builds distress tolerance because the whole thing about distress tolerance is like having those skills that you can go through because not one of them is going to work. You have to have lots of tools in your toolbox um, to be able to ride the waves of distress. Um, so those are just some of the ways. And oh, and then um, all of my all of my students coming in, I do an initial consultation with them and I make coping plans with them. So coping plans for um, during class, if if they're triggered during class and then coping plans for if they're home. Um, so these are, there's a skill in DBT called cope ahead. So if these are basically cope ahead plans. So if you get triggered during, during class, if something comes up, what are your options? What is helpful for you? Um, if you're at home, if you go home and something comes up, um, then what are your options? Who can you talk to? What are your resources? Cause identifying those things before it happens actually increases your chances of actually being able to follow through on skillful and effective coping rather than um, ineffective or ineffective. Yeah. Ineffective coping. Yes. Oh, I love it so much. Um, And it really segues nicely into me asking you to clarify what trauma informed kickboxing means for you. So I think already as soon as you're embedding DBT into a kickboxing practice is going to start to move towards trauma-informed. And I really think about all of this as being on a spectrum, you know, from being like your um, really toxic martial arts gym towards being in a martial arts gym with a pretty good coach towards being in a, a traditional martial arts gym with a coach that's very aware of everyone's individual needs and is quite thoughtful in their policy and practice up to you know, being deliberately trauma-informed and then even I would say further up the spectrum would be being a deliberately therapeutic um, program. In terms of your practice, what does it mean if somebody is saying they have a trauma-informed kickboxing class? And I probably shouldn't say somebody, I should say you, because at this point in time, everybody's definition is kind of different. <laughs> For sure. So, so the question is, how would I define like trauma-informed kickboxing, let's say? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, that's a very good question that has a lot of different 
answers because it's it's like um for me it's based on like the this the spirit and the intentions of the of the approach that you're taking to it um Mm -hmm. I come back to those like those um six principles I guess it depends on where you look um there's different numbers of principles and different names of principles depending on what resource you look at but they Mm -hmm. all come down to like having um choice having an awareness of the impacts of of um trauma and oppression in general on people's lives um having trust having like all of those all of those principles that um that I can't remember all six of them right now um but and I'm building them very intentionally in so I think if I if I like had to distill it down um it would be treating people like human beings (laughs) um (laughs) which I think just everybody should be but unfortunately I think a lot of like in our our capitalist system we're very driven by um by income by um people being like numbers and people being potential profit um and cramming as many people in as possible to be able to make that income and people just become numbers so i think that the trauma-informed practice is is turning that on its head and really deliberately seeing people as people and meeting them where they're at um engaging them like engaging them in feedback about programs and having very clear um options for like for complaints for anonymous feedback where they can do that in a way that they don't feel like there's going to be repercussions come come coming on them um where the processes are really transparent where they have choice um, in if they're doing exercises or how they need to do those things. Um, so it's, uh, it's hard to like summarize because I think when you're actually doing it well, it changes every little aspect of how a gym is run. Um, like even down to what you choose as like your logo and your colors, like everything has to be so intentionally done um, that it, yeah. And I guess for me, it comes down to like inclusivity and accessibility and being aware of like the different things that can impact people's ability to access martial arts training. Um, And the complex intersectional identities that that people have and that people bring to the table and trying to minimize trying to minimize those barriers um in any way you can which sometimes mean inc- means increasing the work for um increasing the work for um the people running the gym but to do it in a good way that's what needs to happen um so I don't know if that at all answers your question. <laughs> it definitely does. I mean, it's a very put you on the spot type of question, because when you think about it, 
um, I answer that question in about 20 hours worth of content um, <laughs> in the course that, you know, that I created and that you did. Um, so it's not a quick, easy thing to answer. And I think people are becoming better and better at articulating what that means. And it's one of those complex words where, like language means so much to all of us, right? There's so much we take for granted in what language does for us in what's implied. And I think it is very much like a feeling type of thing in that we're moving more and more towards, if you say to someone, oh, I teach a trauma-informed kickboxing program, I'm noticing that people have a general sense for what that might mean more and more. Like they can kind of feel in their body how that might be different or how that might feel. What becomes difficult is then starting to like at every single level, like you said, like in terms of policy and the colours in the logo, in the space, in in terms of like who you're trying to prioritise in making the space for them. Um, mm-hmm. All of that then stems from this kind of feeling of trying to bring more equity into martial arts, yeah. whatever the practice is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like the the phrase trauma informed um also is is pretty fraught. Um it's a buzzword. It's something that <laughs> people especially in my field have really strong reactions to. Um because it's often like I said used as a buzzword, um but then not followed through on. So I think um, it's interesting some of the conversations that I've had with people about um, about what I'm trying to do. And they have reactions to trauma-informed and have very dismissive reactions, um, mostly because of how institutions in my part of the world have, have used trauma-informed practice um, as a as an excuse to say they're doing something, but then not actually looking at the the smaller, the smaller, uh, more micro impacts on a day to day basis. Um, so it's interest. There, there's like there's there's critiques of trauma informed, right? And uh, trauma informed approaches. And I think that's important to acknowledge as well because, and I think it comes down to how how we do, like, if it's actually being implemented. Because I think yeah. it's used in some cases to brush aside accountability, but then actually doing it well is hard. And it takes more resources than a lot of the fields like healthcare, like mental health has because they're chronically underfunded. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that is an unfortunate, an unfortunate element of it that actually to do these things well, we need more resources, not less, but often we're asked to be doing more with less resources. So it's this like, it's this unfortunate cycle that's happening and then I'm even reading more lately too on like um, critiques of um, taking a more general trauma-informed approach to um, 
from a neurodiverse perspective. And I think that really comes from understand, I think our understanding of trauma, right? Because trauma, um, and we have to be careful about how we define trauma, because for one person, what something that can be traumatic wouldn't be traumatic for another person. But for folks who are neurodiverse, simply like the um, sensory overload could be pretty traumatic. So mm-hmm. how we understand trauma is also very important when we're defining what we're, how we're taking the approaches that we're taking in trauma-informed settings. So I think all of these understandings are constantly evolving. And that's like really exciting for me um, because, and I think that's like a big principle underlying it is it's not that we're committing to doing things perfectly because we can't. We're committing to doing things in a, an accountable way. So we're trying to do things better. Um, and we're open to like changing, right? When we have, what's that quote by, I think it's Mary. Um, uh, no, I'm terrible with names. Uh, I can see it. I can see it. Anyo. When do I'm just as bad with names. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's it's um until do better until you know better. Do until you know better or do some. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I think I do, but we will find it out and we'll pop it in the show notes. I'll pop it up on the screen in this sure. moment as well too, so everyone can see the actual quote just in case we are. Um, butchering somebody's words but yes a hundred percent I agree um, with everything that you just said and I want to hover drill down a little bit into the intersectional piece Um, because I think you are so right in that if we're talking about trauma-informed we need to do that in a way that is intersectional because um, otherwise you're not really being trauma-informed you're you're Mm -hmm. just trying to kind of fit people into a box that you've predetermined and that in itself is not trauma-informed um, in the way that we're defining it, of course. So let's talk about some of the intersections that you have lived experience in and also professional experience in. Um, and I think it's very timely too, given that last month um, was Autism Awareness Month. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was this call to make sure that we are centering autistic voices around the needs of autistic people and listening to that. Um, So if you could, I'm not saying that you would literally want to do this, but hypothetically you could speak to all of the martial arts coaches and and gym owners in the world, what would three um, pieces of advice that you would give to coaches who um, are just wanting to do better by people who they're working with who are neurodivergent and that could be practical pieces of advice or just general pieces of advice oh only three (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm gonna limit you to three unless you really really want to (laughs) um no I can I limiting me to three is good um (laughs) and I think the I think the first one would be like actually like talk to people in um, in the autistic community about what they need and what like especially because it's so different. Um, 
for every like everyone's experience is so different and everyone's needs is so different um so actually having conversations um i think would be important like if somebody is in the gym or um like maybe doing some reading online just getting an understanding of what that actually is and what it means um so edu- educate yourself <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. number one educate yourself yeah educate yourself that's important um oh this is this is hard because how do you oh because i don't want to imply that any one of them is like uh more important but i guess the like i could probably write an essay about this but this is just the first one that comes to mind for me as well as like sensory profiles um <laughs> and understanding understanding your students unique sensory profiles um because they can be so vastly different and like especially in martial arts can be really overwhelming between like the sounds um with like if you use music or don't use music um hitting the pads so many people being in in the gym at once um like it it can just get very like smells oh my goodness my last gym burned incense during classes which first of all I think is a health hazard um but second of all the smell was very very um very strong (laughs) and very overwhelming into if for for folks who do have more sensitivities um so I think being aware of those things like I just blanket keep sent my place sent free um because um to be aware of of um different people's needs but so having an understanding of sensory sensitivities um and understanding your client's sensory profiles um number three i guess the third one was be be willing to to do things differently um because I think the the traditional, like the traditional big classes, um, the like trial people by just having them drop into a class um, and try it out, like the the regular way of doing things, I think don't necessarily work for um, for lots of different folks. Like regarding regardless of um, like taking account your background, if you're, but especially for um, I think folks who are neurodivergent um, and like bigger class sizes might not necessarily um, be very accessible. And I do know folks who need more, like they need more one-on-one attention um, or they need like a lot, like the, even the, the, how the gym is set up, um, and the amount of stimulus that's on the walls, like something that I have to be aware of in my office is how much like visual stimulating things I'm putting up on the walls. So having like bookcases be covered by curtains and everything like that, like the physical space um, is also like having gear everywhere is very visually overwhelming. Um, so, and like lots of gyms just like have their gear gear hanging or like have it along the wall, um, stuff like that. So a lot of our regular way of doing things, it just inherently um, puts like 
folks who are neurodiverse at a disadvantage because the it's not built for them. It's not um, built in a way that they're they can they can access um, they can like really be at their capacity in. Um, so be willing to like try different things um, and do things differently because um, I think a lot of the ways of how we do things are are very inaccessible for folks who are are neurodivergent. Yes, absolutely. And my call on things like that, too, is even if you want to think about it from a capitalist perspective, it's like it's a point of difference, Um, especially if you're in a big city. If you're in a big city, then there are many martial arts gyms. And like the reason why folks might come to you is because you consider them like that you're doing things for them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so you don't there's no point in being the exact same as the other gym that does mm-hmm. things the like standard martial arts way that tends to, you know, really speak to certain subsets of the population, but then totally miss out other subsets. Like it's a, it's a point of difference to be able to get more mm-hmm. business. If you are thinking about, you know, helping folks who are on the spectrum or working with neurodiverse people and thinking about how you mm-hmm. could do things differently. And it's kind of like fun problem solving if you're mm-hmm. into that kind of thing too, to be like, oh, okay, well, if I can't do it that way and I've just always done it that way, how can I break the status quo? You mm-hmm. know, like how can I be like Apple? How can I think about doing things differently and imaginatively? And like, you know, mm-hmm. what's a solution that is like cost-effective and works and there are, mm-hmm. you just like have to think about it which is also really healthy for your brain definitely and it's like so fun to be able to be creative um and like that's just such a cool aspect that I have really been able to like touch into like opening my own business and trying to make this stuff happen is I can be so creative and like try different things and if it doesn't work that's okay like try something else so um I think like to to do these kind of ventures um folks generally do like are more like entrepreneurial want to be creative so like really tap into that to to make it more accessible for populations that maybe haven't been able to yet to really engage yet can you share some of the like little pieces of creativity that you've done so far um hmm it's I have a lot of ideas right now, um, a lot of ideas, and it's very it's hard to like actually say what one, ones I'm gonna be doing or what ones are gonna work because I'm still in I'm in limbo, because um, uh, I'm I have my home based program right now, um, and we're hoping to move into a commercial space by June, um, so some of the pieces I guess. Um, that I'm planning on doing are, are doing a little bit more of a a um, a smaller class beginners program. So keep it really small and do kind of like a rolling intake um, before people go into like the bigger program. Um, so that I guess is being a bit more creative. I want to do something like a community closet where um folks can like exchange exchange gear or clothing if it if they got in it doesn't work for them because it's sometimes hard to return things um the i want to do like a volunteer program so instead of 
fees um, or for discounts for fees, especially for youth, um, try doing like a mentorship program. So how I'm building the schedule is the youth and the kids program are going to be like back to back. So um, it will be easy for youth to stay and help with the kids program. Um, and they can have uh, in exchange for like discounts on their monthly fees um, to kind of mentor and have mentorship opportunities and stuff like that. So kind of like a volunteer something or other is, is kind of something that I, that I, that I want to build up. And then even just the intake process, like the, for, for me, the, and I've had a lot of comment comments too, from my current program, my current folks in the program, um, about how they appreciate how I've done the intake because it's it's different. It's like I sit down, uh, dedicated them and me in the space, um, nobody else there, and um, we just kind of we I do it really informally. So we talk, yeah. And uh, one, it's probably not going to be super sustainable, but like one person's intake was like two hours because that was what she needed, um, mm-hmm. and like for me, that's just like an ethical moral thing that I think that's important um, when people like to, to meet people where they're at and give them the time that they need. Um, so I guess that's a, that's a, I don't know if I'd call that creative or just like more trauma informed, but um, some of like my one in the same. Right. I, I think so. I think so. One of, uh, one of my, um, friends who have who followed me from the other gym and uh, is in the program now too. Um, she has an art degree um, and she's done like healing through arts, like a program through um, our our regional health authority. And um, we we're kind of thinking about like doing maybe like I don't know ad- admission by donation, and all the donations go to. Um, like a, a fund for the members to um, like a scholarship fund or, or something like that to support their membership fees um, and have like art nights or like dance, dance revolution, um, like things like, like, like events for members to build community and um, <laughs> stuff like that. So um, yeah, those kind, I love, of, I love. those kind of things. Lots of other ideas. Oh my gosh, there's an indigenous artist that I'm working with that she's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. She does uh, nerdy, like nerdy stuff in indigenous form line. Um, and I'm so excited because she's down for um, like doing hand wraps, um, putting some of her designs on hand wraps. So I'm just so excited to have like um, indigenous form line art be on hand wraps because especially because like um like one of my clients in particular um talks to me a lot about like when he was growing up just not not seeing um indigenous representations in media or art around or any healthy depictions whatsoever um was really damaging um and it's shifted a lot in schools now um depending on the school that you're in um but I really want to I really want to include more of that representation in martial arts as well and have that be more accessible for for folks to see. 
Um, so I'm very excited that she's that she's uh, willing to work with me and willing to use her art. So things like things like that. I'm excited about things like that. Yes. And thank you for sharing with us the things that are like in the works as well, too. As a fellow perfectionist, I know how difficult it can be to share things that are unfinished. Um, so we appreciate you for that. Um, so many things I, that are unfinished. They're, and they're never going to be finished. This is the this is the journey, quote unquote, um, that we're all on. Um <laughs> I'm mindful of time and I have so many things that I still want to ask you about. Um, this is not going to be the last time that the audience gets to hear from you, I'm sure. But I wanted to talk about another intersectional identity that you have, which is being non-binary. What has your experience of being a non-binary person in martial arts settings been? Um, and what are some of the things that you've learned from that that you now do differently, given that you work with a lot of people within um, community? Yeah, beautiful question. Um I guess for me, um, in in Taekwondo, having everybody having like the same uniform and not having re- real gender divisions was really empowering. Um, and then I did like a ladies kickboxing cardio class and having the term ladies thrown around and used to like very gendered language was very very uncomfortable for me um and at the time I had not really identified that I was non-binary but I just knew that that did not feel comfortable and that did not feel like my space um so I am very very conscious and teach people about like gender neutral language um and the importance of just using it in our everyday speech as well um in um, oh my God! Can can you can you say your question again so I stay on track? Yes. Uh, my question was first of all, what have been your experiences as a non-binary person going through martial arts, and then how has that shaped what you do differently in the program that you run? Yeah. So I have never actually been out as non-binary in any of the martial arts um, environments that I've trained in because they're they just weren't weren't safe to be out in. Um, my, the Taekwondo place that I trained at, um, the the owners were wonderful. Um, I think I just didn't necessarily feel comfortable having the conversation with them at the time because I saw how they reacted to a another youth who came in who um, who was also non-binary and they would kind of talk behind their back and that kind of stuff. So it just didn't necessarily, they, they gossiped a lot. <laughs> um, wonderful people, um, but they, they gossiped a lot and de- I definitely didn't necessarily keep people's information confidential. Um, and I, I knew that. So just was not going to have that conversation with them. Um, and then in the next place that I trained at, um, it was just, it was very outwardly, hostile to anybody in the two LGBTQ plus community. Um, So it was something that I very much, very much hid, um, did not make an issue of because I would not have been allowed to train there otherwise, I don't think. Um, And the, yeah, so 
I I just had to hide a lot. Um, had a lot of conversations with people at that gym too, who also felt like they needed to hide. So that's something that um, I very very much want to not be um, not be a thing in the space that I am creating. So how that's shifted my practice is um, is I make it very normalized to ask about pronouns and ask what pronouns people use and ask how they identify and have an understanding about like what gender identity is and how that's different um, from, um, oh no, I'm forgetting because I don't think we're using the term biological. We're not using the term biological sex anymore. I'm forgetting which term we're using. Do you know? I don't know, unless you mean like sex aside at birth. Yes, there we go. That's it. I'm the gender unicorn. I was trying to remember what the gender unicorn uses. Um, so yeah, <laughs> sex aside at birth. Um, or like um, your, your sex assumed, at, your sex mm-hmm. assumed at birth. Um, so I, I uh, in my intake process, on my intake forms, um, gender and pronouns are are um, always included in 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 those things um and the um like I have visual cues are always really important too so um I have like rainbow flags and and trans flags and these things up in my space um and like the gender unicorn I always make sure to have up too because these are like the visual cues that tell people that, okay, we're potentially like a potentially a more secure, a more secure space. Um, And when I haven't had the issue yet, because in all of my advertising, I'm very, very, I'm like on my website, I put my pronouns on my website. Um, So it's, it's not a secret that we're gender affirming. Um, So I haven't had an issue yet in classes where somebody is not affirming of somebody else. Um, but if, if that was to happen, um, then I would like take that person aside after not shame them in front of class and, but have that conversation to, to correct. Um, and so those, like those, those things are important. Um, and just creating a space that is just right from the get go normalized. We accept people here. And it's not it's not a conversation of of whether or not we do. And in all of my advertising, I very explicitly put like for my women's classes that were two spirit, non-binary and trans inclusive. Um, so there's just no question about that, because especially in my in my community, we've had a lot of issues with that and and a lot of uh, problematic conversations about um who is considered a woman um so I just try to head that stuff off by being very clear about what the programs are to protect the people like in the programs too um also part of why I do intakes beforehand um to protect people who are already in the program um from folks who may not be therefore the the uh right reasons so i don't know if that answers your question because i tend to ramble a bit i think that excellently answers my question um 
And look, there's a whole bunch of questions that I haven't asked. So we might end up doing a second um, episode, but I'm mindful of your time and also everybody listening's bandwidth for taking in information (laughs) because there has been so many beautiful nuggets of wisdom throughout this conversation. I think it's been wonderful. Um, But the final thing I wanted to touch on is this piece we've danced with a little bit around small towns um, Mm -hmm. and how different it is to try and find a space for you within a small town versus when you're in a big city. Um, And I know that your solution to this was to be like, well, if I can't find it, I'll have to like start my own gym, which I'm obviously not advocating is like the feasible thing for most folks to do. So Mm -hmm. apart from starting your own gym, first of all, uh, what are some of the problems with small towns that that we're referring to? So we're, we're not asking people to assume what we mean here and then also how are some of the ways that folks can navigate that for sure so small towns some of the problems that are there um they they tend to be a little bit more conservative um a little bit more so yeah a little bit more conservative values um in general so um less diverse less accepting of diversity um, in my experience, often a little bit more overtly hostile to minorities. Um, it's very hard to be like, to be trans, to be anywhere within like the LGBTQ plus umbrella. Um, it's, there's often less services, um, in Canada, at least, um, small towns and small Northern towns are usually very resource-based. So, what that means is there's a lot of um, fly in, fly out. Um, so folks um, coming in from out of the community to work and then leaving. So a lot of transient populations, um, which can really affect like the how um, community is formed and felt. Um, there often is also a lack of... Um, like usually your higher educated folks are drawn to cities. Um, so folks who have like exposure to different um, different walks of life um, are usually drawn to the bigger centers. So, and, and uh, there's a lot of dynamics that can happen in, in smaller towns with like intergenerational, intergenerational stuff and like the, big families who've been in town a long time and have a lot of power um, and everybody knows everybody's business. So it's very hard once you're labeled with something or once you're labeled as something to get away from that because that's what everybody knows you as. Um, So it's hard to break patterns and it's hard to, it's hard to make mistakes and then live a different way. Um, because every labeling theory um, from uh, this a sociological sociological theory, but it's very hard to to shift um, things when people view you a certain way. So lots of people <laughs> tend to get stuck in um, small towns and don't have a lot of don't have a lot of exposure to to the rest of the world. Um, so those are some of the those are some of the problems. Um, there's probably others. There's also lots of strengths of small towns too, and lots of opportunities, um, which I think are very, very cool. Um, in terms of the, 
the, I think your set next question was um, kind of how to navigate some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I have a very great answer for that um, because like, like you said, my answer was um, to, to start my own thing. Um, that has always been my, my answer. Even when I was like growing up in my town, when there wasn't opportunities, I would, I would just make them. Like I started my own club when I was in high school. Um, so doing my own thing has kind of always been my my way of, of dealing with small town life. Um, but that is not an option for everybody. Um, I think the internet has um, given, especially people in small towns, a lot more opportunities for connection than there has been previously. Um, I see this in like the the youth that are growing up now in um, my hometown who are trans, who are um, have different sexual orientations. They are not connecting with people in town. They're connecting with people out of town and they're finding their own communities. Um, and that can be a healthy thing. And that can also be a not healthy thing depending on the community that they can find. So pros and cons. Um, but it definitely provides opportunities for connection that otherwise wouldn't be available to them. Um, so social media and o- virtual options um, definitely are something that that can give connection um, that otherwise wouldn't be available. I know for me, like when I was still really embedded in the gym that I was before and really dealing with a lot of transphobia and trying to advocate and it wasn't working. Um, and there was a lot of stuff going on at work that was not according really to my values and how, how I was um, wanting to live either. But for me, like having the connection to you, having the connection to Danielle actually really was like grounding for me because Kay, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in my town that is not good. And um, I'm seeing a lot of really ugliness in people, but it helped me remember that there was like lots of beauty in people as well. Um, so finding like finding community is, is the biggest suggestion that I would um, make for folks, whether that be like starting your own thing, like with, your couple safe people at a school um, or finding a community online um, that you can connect to. I know there's like, there's global martial arts university that I was training through for a little bit um, that offers different things, but there are online programs like your program is online. Um, So I think there's, there's more online programs now, especially after COVID than I think there was before. Um, So to, to give people, to give people options. Yes. Thank you so much. You answered that so well. Um, Before we log off, how can people, I love to say this, connect with Connection Martial Arts? How can they Mm -hmm. join if they are in the area or how can they connect with you online as well? For sure. So the, the, um, how would, what would be the best way? Really any, really anything. Um, On Instagram, um, at Connection Martial Arts, um, Facebook, um, same name, Connection Martial Arts. Um, my email is Nicole at connectionmartialarts.ca. Um, website www.connectionmartialarts.ca. Um, all of those, 
all of those have options to connect and reach out and I get all of them. Um, so whatever, whatever works for whatever works for folks. Perfect. We'll drop all of those in the show notes so people can connect with you or follow along to see how things go. I think at the very least, you're listening, you'll want to follow to see the gym that Nicole opens hopefully in June because I am very excited to see the gym reveal. And I know you're all going to be excited to see what a like built from the ground up trauma-informed martial arts gym, kickboxing gym can look like. So I think definitely follow to get to see the updates for that. I'm excited for that. I am very excited too, and very excited. If, uh, I'm always open to always open to connecting with people, so don't hesitate to reach out. Yes. Thank you for being part of the club. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, please refer to the information in the show notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode like to connect with Nari, you can find her on Instagram at Nari Masega. You need to know that nobody shapes me but me. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came and the feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry.
sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts. No, really, you can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh? 